So, so this morning, I just want to, I, I just want to talk a little bit about moms, but, but as you're going to see as we walk through this text, uh, mom is going to take on a new, new definition, if you will. Um, but, I, but, I, but, I, but I think it's going to be a healthy one and a helpful one uh, for us. Um, again, happy Mother's Day to each and every single one of you. Um, the, not the dads, but every, every single, every, every other person that's not a dad. Um, the institution of, of motherhood, if, you, if you've been paying attention in our society, is actually under significant attack, severe attack. Um, our culture tends to attack motherhood and fatherhood from two different angles, right? So they don't, they don't receive the attack the same way. The institution of mothering is under constant attack through the underselling and the undervaluing of it. Um, I, I think the institution of fatherhood is under attack almost through the erasing of it, where, where it appears to be like, you know, dad is just like some bum that kind of shows up at the house and grabs a Budweiser and, and then that's, that's his role, right? It's like he doesn't do anything else. But as far as mother, mothers, I think, I think, I think there is an undervaluing and an underselling of the idea and the institution of mothering. More and more folks are starting to get the impression that women should just kind of cast motherhood aside and in favor of more notable, right, and, and more worthy ambitions. And so women who embrace motherhood in the culture, whether it's mothers who stay at home um, or mothers who work outside of the house, but they prior, prioritize their families over anything happening in their careers, uh, whether it be either one of those type of moms, they're, they're almost seen as settling for a less than ideal life, right? It's like, poor you, giving up, you know, settling in your career. You could be so much greater if you weren't worried about those kids, right? And so there, and so there seems to be this undervaluing and this underselling of, of mothers. And they, are, and they are often seen as not realizing their true potential as women when they are holding motherhood in higher esteem than all other things that are going on in their life. And that's deeply unsettling because the Bible doesn't have that opinion of moms. The Bible doesn't have that opinion of women. It says in Proverbs 14 and 1 that the wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down, builds her house. It's the idea that the wisest of women amongst us takes priority or considers priority her home. Even if she works outside of it, she still says, hey, if this ain't right, then these other things don't matter. And that's what the scripture says. The wisest of women builds her home. One of Paul's, one of Paul's apprentices by the name of Timothy, um, he, he was very strong in the faith in large part due to his mother's and grandmother's Christ-like influence over him. So Paul talks to Timothy in his, in his second letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2 or 2 Timothy chapter 1, and he says, Grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day as I remember your tears. I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded, listen, of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and then in your mother Eunice. And now I am sure dwells in you as well. 
And so Paul is pointing to Timothy's influences through his mothers. The matriarchs of the family gave him the faith that he held dear and that God used him mightily in. The calling and the office of motherhood is so essential that God literally ingrains it in, into his top ten of moral standards. When you, look at the, when you look at the Ten Commandments, one of those commandments is honor your father and your mother, Exodus chapter 20. But the commandment is so important that the Lord attaches to that commandment a promise. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that your Lord God is giving you. Paul in the New Testament epistle of Ephesians says that that's the first commandment with the promise to honor your mother, honor your father. And with that honor comes long life. Paul in his new, and Paul in his New Testament letter by saying that with that, with that honor comes new, uh, comes long life is in a way pointing to the reality of judgment that comes when we disobey that command. As a matter of fact, when you look at Proverbs chapter 20, you hear these words. If one cuss, curses his, almost said cuss, right? I got, I got real, real black on y'all for a second and gave y'all cuss. If one curses the father or his mother, his lamp will be put out in utter darkness. It says in Proverbs 30 that the eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. So here's the bottom line. No matter what the culture thinks of mothers, the Bible holds them in high esteem, in high regard. They are prized by God. And when they are absent and when they are or they're forfeiting their calling, in pursuit of other things, in pursuit of placing other things in priority, they are truly missed. You can't just replace what they bring with more video games and more television, more extracurricular activities. There is something unique to what the mother brings to the home in the same way that there is something unique to what the father brings to the home. You can see it clearly in the overall state of our children in this society. While our household incomes are steadily increasing as a culture, over the last couple of decades you can see the rise in the average household income. Our average household square footage is growing and increasing. We're getting larger homes and more homes. And yet, even though there is all sorts of evidences of prosperity, in our homes, all sorts of evidences of success in our home. In that same period of time, we are experiencing in the midst of the highest rates of suicide amongst children that this country has ever known. We are facing some of the highest rates of behavioral issues and social impairments and other deficiencies that we've ever faced as a country. Even, even though our success has increased, the health of our children has not. Because present fathers and present mothers are needed. Present fathers and present mothers are not optional. They are essential. However, what I want to do is I want to look at Titus chapter 2 because there is a different kind of mothering that our culture is unknowingly attacking, and that is spiritual mothering. Now, spiritual mothering is being attacked in a different way. 
Spiritual mothering is mature women of the faith playing their part to nurture and encourage other Christians less mature or less experienced than they are in the faith. Paul, in his closing words in his letter to the Roman church, in Romans chapter 16, verse 13, Paul says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother. Greet his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Rufus's mother literally, or wasn't literally, Paul's mother. But as a fellow member of the family of God, she acted like a mother to him. She gave him the kind of love and affection and care that can only be attributed to mothering. I say, I say that it is being unknowingly attacked because unlike physical and natural motherhood, I don't even think spiritual motherhood is on, the, on, is on anybody's radar necessarily in the culture, but it is being attacked because, it, because the culture is attacking our schedule. And so because it attacks our schedules, mothers, women who are mature in the faith are saying to themselves, I'm too busy to be worried about nurturing and encouraging other sisters around me. And it's attacking our wheels because, because, because where, where, we, where we might have room to step in and, and, and disciple and, and, to, and to mentor and to train and equip younger sisters, we're saying to ourselves, I just don't feel like having to deal with the inconvenience and the hardship that will come in my life by being worried about nurturing and encouraging other sisters around me. That's just too messy. But if the, church is, if the church is not like family, but the church is actually family, that's what we believe. That the church is not like family, but the church is a family. And families suffer when mothers are absent. We can expect similar effects in the household of God when his spiritual mothers are absent. Do you understand that? We can expect the same effects. What do you expect in a home where the mother is absent? Typically, a child or children that are left wanting for nourishment, nurturing. It is no wonder our churches, both men and women, are struggling with how to show forth Christ powerfully in the world and effectively in their individual lives and in their vocational lives and in their church life and in their family life because, because we are short of Fathers, and we are short of mothers. Everybody has abdicated their duties to a preacher guy. It's like the preacher guy will do all of that. And we show up and listen to the guy. And when we got issues, we call the guy. And he'll take care of all of us. And like the Hottie Lewis um, at Blueprint Church says all the time, that ain't a family, that's an orphanage. When you got one guy care for all these people and not suited to care for them, that's an orphanage. So I want to look at these few verses in Titus 2 this morning and, and, and issue this encouragement as we read through it. Women of God in this room, your presence, your voice, your nourishment, your encouragement, your time, your talent are needed in the lives of the younger sisters and even the younger brothers around this room. 
If we are ever to expect to raise mature believers in Christ who are ready to kick the gates of hell down and advance the kingdom in this city and in our world. Titus chapter 2 verse 3 it says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the younger women to love their children and their husbands. To be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. In this letter that Paul writes to one of his understudies, Titus, the young Titus, one of his young pastoral mentees, if you will, Paul lays out a model of discipleship for men and women, young and old, that is the closest thing to spiritual mothering and fathering as you're going to see in Scripture. This model of discipleship gives us something for the older sisters in the faith to model and live by, but it also gives them a blueprint, so to speak, on what they should be teaching the younger sisters concerning life. But it also is giving the younger sisters a target to aspire to, something to reach towards. What does it look like for me to grow in my faith? I think Paul gives us helpful hints. In this, in, this, in this scripture, in this text. Now, the first important observation I want to point out to us actually is not in verse 3. It's actually in verse 1 because Paul tells Titus, young Titus, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then after he makes that connection to sound doctrine, then he begins to tell them all these things about what to tell the older women and the older men and what the older women and the older men are to instruct the younger women and the younger, younger men in. So Paul makes the connection to doctrine and, and this ideal of disciple-making or this ideal of discipling others around you. In other words, Paul is making a connection to what we believe and what we do. Does it make sense? Saying that the words he is about to unpack to Titus are in fact what aligns to sound teaching and sound belief. To say it another way, the vibrant Christian life is not one that simply has right ideas about Jesus and right ideas about the gospel that's buried in our heads. But rather, it is instead a life where those beliefs and those ideas have embedded themselves in us so richly that they bleed out in our daily practice, in our daily living. It's not just up here. Does that make sense? But it's so embedded in our spirit that it's moving out of us into practice in our daily lives. So Paul is saying, you know what sound, healthy, accurate teaching looks like. And it's this, men go train, nourish, equip, and encourage the men around you like sons for the spread of the kingdom. And women go train, nourish, equip the sisters around you like daughters for the spread of the kingdom. More often than we care to admit, we, what we oftentimes acknowledge with our heads about Jesus, we don't activate with our hands. It just stays here, right? It doesn't bleed out into some action, into some actual discipling, into some actual training, into some actual mentoring, into some actual invitation of younger people into our lives to shadow us and to walk with us and to show them what it means to walk with Jesus. Here's Paul encouraging Titus 
to get the church in which he has been entrusted to shepherd to live out what they believe. And what is that for Paul? It's discipling those behind us. Spiritual fathering, spiritual mothering. And so what does that look like for spiritual mothers? And and, and, in verse 3, again, he says, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so it begins by, by being about the character of the women. See, these three verses contain ideals about spiritual mothering. The first idea is character. What is it, what is it, what is it, what does it mean to, to have this character? Well, it's simple. You, 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 you can't give what you don't have. See, before he can get to what you teach, he has to talk about what you possess. This character is essential. That's why it, it, it comes before the teaching. It comes before the training. And so he tells them to be reverent in behavior. Cry, uh, one of the comment, one of the uh, one of the popular commentaries that I use, it, it, it talks about this idea of what does reverent in behavior mean, and it says this quote: "The basic meaning is that this woman should live in such a way as as is befitting a godly person. Her life and behavior are marked by holiness, reflecting the character of the Lord she loves and lives for." See, to live holy or to, or, to, or to be reverent in your behavior, it literally means temple fitting. It means to be suitable for entrance into the temple. That's what, that's what this text means, when it, this ideal of reverent in behavior. And so it means to live a holy life, to live a life that's marked by otherness. And what I mean by that is it, it's to live a life marked by being in the world but, but not being of it. You're in it, but you're just, you're not shaped by it. You're not marked and molded and identified by it. It is a life marked by a commitment to not be inundated in the cares of the world, to not be, to not be inundated in the identities of this world, but to embrace the distinction that comes from being with and in Jesus. That may set you apart. That may make you a little different. That may even at some times make you a little awkward. But that's what it means to be reverent in behavior. To not move like everybody else around you moves. To not do everything or to not do the things that everybody, every other woman around you does. To not speak in a way that every other woman around you speaks but to be outside of it. This woman is not looking to be in lockstep with the culture's definition of woman. She is looking instead to simply please her master. Her hope is not found in winning society's approval. Her, her hope is found in, and her hope is found in the approval that she's already won in Jesus. This is the woman, this is the woman, this is one of the women who in the church we, we, we hold in high regard because she walks in holiness. This is one of the women that you want to be praying for you when something's going on in your life. Y'all know those women. Sister so-and-so, can you pray for me? Keep me in your prayers. Because you know that woman's talking to Jesus, right? 
She's a woman, she's a woman that is walking with God, and her behavior is reflective of it. But Paul goes on and he says that she must not be given to slander and gossip. That is to say she's a woman of truth as well. She doesn't go around spreading false witness or inaccurate witness of others. She doesn't go around putting others in a light that's going to cause the people around them to think less of them. She carries and possesses control over her words. Paul says this this woman also must not be given too much wine. She must not be given too much wine. She must not be a drunkard. We all know what that means, but, but if, I, if I can just pause for a moment to just say this, these two lines, I don't think, are necessarily the point of what Paul is highlighting. Let me explain. I don't believe the call to avoid slander and the, and the call to avoid drunkenness was merely a statement that Paul was speaking in order to speak to the natural condition of women. And I've heard people use this before, right? I've heard people say, well, you know, the reason that Paul is saying, you know, don't be a drunkard and don't be a gossip, because, you know, women are kind of, you know, just prone to being drunks and gossips. And, that, and that's not the point. That's not the point. I think, I think what's happening here is that Paul is speaking to a particular cultural condition. And he is, he is likely making an, making an appeal to the women in that culture to avoid the cultural hiccups of the community that they live in. Here's what one scholar says about it. He says, evidently in Crete, the liability to these excesses, slander, gossip, drunkenness, was more severe than in Ephesus, especially among women. And so he's saying that in that culture... The women were more driven or more prone to wander into drunkenness and more prone to wander into gossip and slander. Not in every city, but in this city in which Paul is speaking to. Why is that important? Well, before I even say that, even in chapter 1, he says something similar to it. He says about the Cretans, he says that a prophet of their own said the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, Lazy gluttons. In other words, people are given over in Cretan to false witness and to excess. Does that make sense? So this is not simply a warning for women to not get caught in things that they're just naturally prone to get caught in. This is a call for women to not get caught up in the culture, in the cultural idolatry that they are settling in. Not to be shaped and molded by, by the culture's word and by the culture's standards for them, but instead to be shaped and molded by God's word. Now, why is that important? Because Shonda Rhimes makes some really, really, really good shows. Anybody know who Shonda Rhimes is? Grey's Anatomy, Scandal, How to Get Away with Murder. She makes some really, really, really good shows. And, and, and Grey's Anatomy is well made and it's well produced and it feels real. And it can seem really, really real. And Beyonce makes some really, really, really good music. And it sounds great and, and it's high quality and, and it just makes you want to get up and dance. If you're in the, if you're in the store and a Beyonce song comes on, you got to keep from swaying your hips, right? It just, it just feels good. It's a really, really well produced, well made music. But Paul is saying to Titus to teach 
or to train the spiritual mothers, to train the younger women to not be caught up in the culture around them. That's the point. So the culture around us has identities that it wants to shape you in. And you'll watch Grey's Anatomy and tell yourself, well, I guess that's kind of, you know, I mean, it's natural to them to respond this way. So, I mean, this is the way I'm supposed to be responding in my own home. And the answer is no. And you'll listen to Beyonce and she'll say, you know, all the single ladies get your hands up and then she'll give you a whole list of things that the single ladies are supposed to be doing. And you'll say to yourself, well, I mean, that's how the single ladies are supposed to live. And the answer is no. You don't take your culture, you don't take your cues for your identity from the culture. You take your cues from God's word. And so Paul is saying, mothers, spiritual mothers, older women, teach the younger women to take their cues not from the culture, but to take their cues from Holy Scripture. So the sisters in the room, let me encourage you to to, to be shaped by God's word and be shaped by his gospel. In order to do that, you have to intake it sometime, right? If the only thing you intake is the culture's prescription for who you are and, and the culture's ideals for what you should do, then a lot of times you'll take on the shape of that. And that's how you'll live. And that's how you'll respond to hardship. And that's how you'll respond to conflict. But I ask you to take your cues from Holy Scripture to read God's word and to allow God's word to settle in your spirit so that when conflict comes, it's God's word that comes out. When hardship comes, it's God's word that comes out. And not only you do that, but then you do what? You train the younger behind you to do the same. Paul says that this woman must teach what is good. And that gets back to what I just said. If it is in you, then it becomes a natural outpouring. Teaching what is good is not difficult if I'm just pursuing, if I'm already pursuing it. Does that make sense? If you cook every day, how difficult is it to teach somebody how to cook? Are you tracking with that? Nobody ever says, well, I mean, I don't know, Right? What you ask me to do? Macaroni. I mean, I cook macaroni every day, but I don't know if I can teach. No, no, you just say, hey, come over here. Let me show you how, let me show you how I cook this macaroni. Right? Well, what happens when you're in, when you're, when, you're, when, you're, when you're walking with Jesus? You don't have to say, well, I don't know. I don't know if I can teach this. You just say, come on. You just walk with me. And I'll show you what it looks like. I mean, I, I'm not perfect, right? But you just walk with me. And I'll, just, and, I'll, and I'll show you everything that I've learned over the years. And so it's in that character that you see Paul begin to make the appeal to Titus to teach the women, to teach the old, younger women to, 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 to live with these certain sets of values. He says to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, to be pure, to be working at home, kind and submissive to their own husband. Paul kind of concentrates on two categories, really. It's, it's the posture of this woman and then, and then this woman's home life. That's where he concentrates in this text, her posture. She's self-controlled. 
not given over to rage, not, not given over to, not given over to um, addiction, not given over to losing control in situations. She's pure. In the midst of a culture that is anything but pure, and that teaches you to embrace the impurity, that teaches you to embrace hypersexuality, that teaches you to embrace, you know, promiscuity. Paul says that, that to teach your younger women around you, sisters, to teach them to be pure, to teach them to be kind in a sassy culture, right? To teach them to be kind in an edgy culture, in a culture that's like, hey, if you say this to me, I'm going to spout this back to you. He tells the older women to teach your younger sisters to be kind. And so that's the posture, but then he gets into the, the home life, and this is where things get really, really turbulent in our culture, right? This is where it gets really tricky. Because, like, you read all of this, and you're like, whatever, you know, I'm not doing this. I want to I try to encourage you in some of this a little bit, all right, and try, to, and try to see if we can make sense of this. For example, the idea of workers at home. This phrase from time to time has been used to kind of argue that the only place for a woman is inside the home in a domesticated role with like apron on, bare feet as they say. But we certainly know that not, that's, not to be, uh, that's not to be the case because when we read Proverbs 31, we see a totally different picture of woman. Now this woman isn't, this woman isn't the woman that you, you're, you're going to ever be. But it's the ideal woman. It's the woman, it's the, it's the woman that we see and we say, hmm, that's worthy of pursuit. And what, is, what does Proverbs say about that woman? Proverbs 31, it says, an excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels in the heart of her husband. Trust in her and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household. She considers a field and buys it with the fruit of her hands. She plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength, makes her arms strong. She she perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She, put her hand, she puts her hands to the, to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. And on and on and on and on. This is, this is not a woman confined to sweeping kitchens and washing dishes. This is not a woman that's just attending tea parties. Are you tracking with that? See, all of that is cultural conditioning as it relates to how we view and how we understand women. That's Western cultural conditioning. When we think about women as Donna Reed, for those of you who know who Donna Reed is, some of y'all probably don't, that was a bad example, but domesticated, totally confined to the home. But we see the Proverbs 31 woman is frugal, she's, con she's 
taking care of funds and thinking through how to handle these things. She's productive. She's industrious. She's going out making garments and selling those garments. She's market savvy. She's going out checking out the fields and making decisions as to whether or not we should get this field or not as a family, whether or not we should purchase this field. She is is a community advocate. She's opening her hands up for the poor around her city and around her community and and reaching out her hands to assist the needy. One commentary says that this lady is a good homemaker. Her home is her primary base of operation. But Proverbs 31 teaches us that this diligent homemaker is involved in a wide range of activities and interests. She's not confined to a domesticated life. Does that make sense? But then also Paul says this about this woman that he says, or or these women, he says, train the younger sisters to be submissive to their own husbands. Now we're in really tricky waters for a couple of reasons. Because one, the culture hates submission. Let me first say this. It says submission to your own husbands. That's where it starts. So before we even define submission, let's all agree that it's not talking about just submitting to every dude. Because we can tend to do that, right? We can tend to think that every woman is just supposed to be kind of under us. Just do whatever we say because we're the men. It's not how this goes, okay? Secondly, Let's understand that submission has been marred by sin. All right? So a lot of the ways in which women have been called to submit is more a condition of sinful man than it is God's calling for their submission. Are you tracking with that? And so the man's like, you know, propped up with his feet up. Woman, bring me my food. You know, and it's... You're supposed to submit, right? That's what, the, that's what the preacher said. You know, I mean, come on. You know, it's, that's, not, that's not where we're going either. Does that make sense? So what, in fact, are we saying? Let's go back to Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, if you would turn there with me. This one I want everybody to see with their own eyes. Genesis chapter 1, it says, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so there's this image of dominion being given to humanity. They share in the dominion of earth, all right? Male and female share in this dominion, all right? Look over to chapter 2 and verse 18. It says this. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that a man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. 
And out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought to them the man to see what he would call them. And then it goes on and he begins to name the animals. But it stops and it, and, 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 and it continues on because Adam, as he's naming the animals, God sees that Adam doesn't have a fit for him. And so he dropped down all the way to verse 21, says, God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up his place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this is the last, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So this is the helper that God has created for man. A woman by the name of Wendy Alsap writes about this term helper. And she says, this woman was created in the image of God. She was designed to be a helper suitable to her male counterpart. When I read this in common English, it always sounds condescending. I'm called to, to be the help? That sounds like some 18th century snob referring to their servants. I'm not the help. But that is simply because our English translation can't do justice to the Hebrew term. Instead, think of the man of sorrows carrying his cross toward Gethsemane. And as he stumbles, Simon of Serene steps in to carry it with him. This is a much closer picture of the biblical concept of help. It is not a maid. It is more like a crutch. It is not a mindless sidekick waiting on an order. It is Morpheus or Trinity to the Matrix's Neo. The Hebrew word is strong. The Hebrew term for helper is most often used in the Old Testament of God himself, which makes sense since the woman was created to bear the image of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 29, she continues uh, quoting this verse, Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a, a people saved by the Lord. He is your shield and your helper. The same term. And your glorious sword, your enemies will cower before you and you will trample down their high places. God himself is called our helper. The same Hebrew word used of the first woman in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. The New Test in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is called our helper. She continues and she says, if I hold on to the attitude that being created as a helper is condescending and substandard, I am basically mocking the name of God and his character. And for the role of helper, it, for the role of helper is one he willingly embraces himself. Does that make sense? And so the reality is, is that man and woman are created in the image and likeness of God. Both man and woman are created in the image of likeness of God. And man and woman have been called to rule together over the earth and have been given dominion over the earth. But woman has been called in this particular role of helper. It doesn't make her less than man. Does it make sense? It doesn't make her less than man. And it doesn't make her completely and totally mute before man. As if she doesn't have any giftings or talents to share in opinions and thoughts to add to the conversation. And so the ideal of submission has to be rethought. I think, in some of our culture. Part of the reason because, like I said, we've been in it, we've been shaped by the culture, and part of the reason because we've been shaped by sin. And so we see our women as, be over, stand in the corner and be silent, right? You're supposed to be submissive to me. And that's not at all what the, way, the biblical picture of submission as it relates to wives. 
It is communication. She does bring value, insight, ideas. She does have strengths that aid and assist the home and that bring the entire home benefit, as it says in Proverbs 31. And those strengths are to be utilized. Those strengths are to be used. Those talents are to be shared with the home. And it's this that God is saying to the older women, train your younger women to be like this, to be strong helpers, right? To not just be sitting around and thinking that womanhood is silence and cooking and cleaning. Womanhood is far broader than that. Teach your younger women to be that. And then this is how he ends it. He says, in teaching this, you do this so that the word of God may not be revived. So listen to this. When the sisters are training the other sisters, when the fathers, the, the spiritual fathers are training the younger men, then what happens is there is room for evangelism. There's room for the word of God to be spread. The word of God is not reviled when we are spending time training and equipping those around us. When we, are, when we are not doing that and we're not training them to, to hold high regard for the home and we're not training them to hold high posture in terms of their character, then we leave room for the church to put on a display before the world where they say, I'm not seeing this Jesus that you guys are describing. Does that make sense? Your men are all over the place doing God knows what. Your women are all over the place doing, doing God knows what. But you guys are telling me about Jesus, and I'm, I'm confused. What is, it, what is it that you're trying to teach me? So evangelism, missions, disciple-making is hindered when we don't take seriously the roles that God has given us as older men and women to train the younger men and women around us. Does that make sense? And so those of us who have been worn into the family of God, I want to ask you the question, who are you equipping? Who are you teaching? Who are you fathering? Who are you mothering? Who are you discipling? Even in that, there's another question amongst us for those, that, for those of us, uh, really all of us in the room. Who is it that is training and equipping and teaching and discipling you? Who are you leading? Who are you encouraging to reject the culture's definitions of women and men and, and, the cultures, and the culture's definitions and identities of women and men? But who are you allowing to speak into your life as well concerning these things? What single ladies in this room are you looking to to teach you about singleness? And what single ladies in this room are you training in relation to singleness? What married women are teaching us about marriage? What married, and what married women are looking to others to learn about marriage? The same thing for the men. This is the cycle that we have to continue in God's, in God's house. Does that make sense? 
This is what we must, this, this is what we must start, and this is what we must continue in order for the church to be who God has called it to be by God's grace.